I need to tell you right off the get-go, I am innocent, no matter what next-door neighbor says. Yes, next-door neighbor is a website, a neighborhood website that tells what's going on if you need something fixed, but they also tell you about things that have been done around the community that are not good. So I want to explain to you that on Easter Sunday, we had signs advertising our service. We put them out on Thursday before Easter. On Easter Monday, the Monday after, we collect signs. We as a staff decided, hey, collect signs where you can get them and find them. And so I found myself on Mooresville Parkway at the Davis Drive intersection and saw a sign in a median. I said, I'm going to zip over to the left lane. I'm going to get that sign, put it in my car, and then I'm going to go. I jumped out, got my sign, threw it in the car. Let me make sure you understand something, that I was barefoot. I was driving with no shoes on. Important for my story. I proceeded to turn left on Davis Drive. I drove all the way down Davis Drive. I turned right on High House Road. I noticed a black charger is following me. I was coming down High House Road. I went over from the left lane to the right lane, and so did he. I got to 55 to turn right on 55. I turn right on 55 like a good driver that I am. I stay in the left lane, but I go down the road because I need to get into the like, right lane. I go into the, get into the left lane, and so does he. I'm like, I don't have any shoes on. This is a black Dodge Charger. They are following me right now. I'm going to get arrested for something that I don't know what is going on. Finally, I get to Carpenter Fire Station Road where I turn left to go to my neighborhood. I come down Carpenter Fire Station Road, so do they. And I go turning right to go into my neighborhood, and so do they. And some of you are asking, like, why did you go home? <laughs> I, I don't know. I still don't know. And I just take my dad van, pull it into the, the house, and the charger goes past, turns around the cul-de-sac, and leaves. And I was like, oh, okay, that's good. Everything's cool. I go back on the porch to work because uh, I was working on, uh, from the house that day and I was on the back porch working. Dana goes, you are not gonna believe what just happened. I'm like, what? A cop just came to the house. And I'm like, are you, you're kidding. Da- Molly goes, no, we're not. <laughs> like, they came to the house. He was really nice. What did he want? He said, there was a complaint of a blue van that was stealing yard signs. So since it's a complaint, we had to put up, no, my husband is a pastor, and he was being a good citizen and collecting the yard signs in Cary, North Carolina. So I want to let you know something, that I was not stealing yard signs. I was just doing our civic duty as a church and a pastor to clean up our yard signs that we had advertised for our service. And the officer said, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a complaint. But needless to say, no disrespect to the Cary Police, Police Department. I love them to death. But there, there were like three cars that came to the house. <laughs> No disrespect whatsoever. They did play basketball with my son and give him a badge and all that kind of stuff, so it's all good. Anyway, I want to let you know something. I feel like I needed to tell you that also to say that I don't feel like that I have disqualified myself no matter what next-door neighbor might be saying about the blue van that's been stealing yard signs. Okay? Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're in our third question of the Explore God series. We want to take a look at our third question. We'll get there in just a minute. Two weeks ago, I was able to speak in our first Explore God question where we asked, how do we know that God exists and how do we know the Bible is reliable? And I, in that message, I talked about a situation where I had, my wife and I had gone to a friend's house. They lived right outside of Harvard University. 
And we were talking to them about Jesus and trying to see me share our faith with them. And my friend looked at me in the face and he said, once we were sharing our faith in, in Jesus alone, for, for faith alone, and he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I could never believe in something that says there is only one way. I could never believe in something that says there's only one way. On the same trip, we were talking to another, a friend of mine's mother. Um, we had run into her and we were talking and when we were in high school, her husband had passed away and she looked at me and she said, I just want you to know something, that my husband was the nicest person in the world. He didn't really care too much about church or the things of God. If you, you are saying that if he did not believe in Jesus, he's not in heaven, she said, that is absurd. That leads us to our third question that we're going to address this morning that is so incredibly important. Is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? We're going to answer that question at the end of the message after we work through John chapter 4, John chapter 14, 1 through 6. The gospel of John is written to a group of people to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. In, in an effort to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the way to God, John goes through and gives us several texts about who, he, who Jesus is. He, he records what Jesus said about himself. In John chapter 6, verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. In John 8, 12, it says, I am the light of the world. In John, 8, in John 10, 9, it says, I am the door. In John 10, 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he looks at Lazarus and those around and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. And our text this morning is John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anytime that these statements are used, meaning I am, it's a reference back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where the, the God of the universe appeared before Moses, the burning bush issue, and he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, I am that I am. Who are you? That's what Moses asked. And God says, I am that I am. Now we find in the Gospel of John, an eyewitness account, this is one of the Gospels that talks about the life of Jesus, and so he comes in and he talks about who he is, the bread, the light, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the true vine. Then he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is basically making a bold declaration that I am God. And these statements clearly identify who he is. And for centuries, for centuries, they've caused a lot of controversy. But none like the statement that we'll talk about this morning, where Jesus did emphatically declare that he was the way, the truth, and the life. You see, that statement right there is unbelievably controversial and offensive, especially in our everybody gets a trophy age. I was a, a referee for basketball. Kid you not, this gives you an example of kind of what we don't want to do is offend people. I was a referee for basketball in college, and while I was in seminary, I would do like rec basketball games. Let me just give you a little, little, little referee lesson right now. If I was to do this right here, that's a violation. That means you traveled or you double dribbled or something like that. But if I closed my arm like this, this is a fist, that means you fouled somebody. So I would blow the whistle, point to him, foul, one zero, hit, two shots, or ball out of bounds. So this right here is, is a foul. This right here is a violation. This is what they told us. They said, you can still do this and this, but you can't point at the person because we do not want to offend them. I said, are you kidding me? 
We don't want to offend them. So just hold your hand up like this or just do that. It felt really weird to do this or that and blow the whistle. That's what it was. That was in the rec league that I was refing in. So this statement right here that Jesus um, said, and it's recorded in John 14, 6, is the, is the one verse that we're really going really gonna to help really unpack this morning to really help us answer this question, is Christianity too narrow? But in order to do that, I think we have to do some work with verses 1 through 5. So we're going to do some work with John 14, 1 through 5, and then we're going to really jump into John 14, 6 and really unpack that. And so we need to know the scene. What is the scene that's going on? Jesus is in the upper room. His life is getting ready to end. He's going to the cross. He's gathering his disciples together, and um, it's the, the, the Last Supper and he's talking about what's going on. And so in chapter 13, he said that he's going to be betrayed. He said that he was going to be denied. He said that he was going to leave them. And that caused great, great unrest. And so for the next 48 hours, a lot of things were going on and taking place. And the disciples, to be quite honest, were very, very, very troubled. And that's where we pick it up in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let's take a look at what it says there. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So we're going to stop right there just a minute. I told you, here's what's happening. These guys, from a Jewish standpoint, their heritage, their legacy was to do the job that their father did. Your father was a fisherman, then you would be a fisherman. And then your sons would be a fisherman, and it would go on and on and on. And that's what you would do, and that's what you would be. Jesus comes into the scene. We see that he's saying all these radical statements. We're seeing unbelievable things take place, miracles take place. And they say, forget the fishing net, I'm following you. And then Jesus in John 13 says, uh, I'm leaving. And they're like, what are you talking about? What are you saying? You mean I have just given up my heritage, my income, everything, my, my status in society, and I'm following you, and you're telling me you're going to leave. Listen, that's not the way someone who is to free us from Roman bondage is supposed to do that. That's what they're saying. So Jesus comes to him and says, I want you to understand something. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Then he comes down to verse two. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now, I want to stop right there and I want to make sure you don't miss this because Jesus is making a declaration that I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a house. He uses the word house. In other versions, he uses the word mansion. So we have this idea. I'm going to contextualize this a little bit for you. We have this idea that he's just going to go all chipper gains on him. We thought that you would just go like all fixer up and they're like, I'm going to construct this house and it's going to be a beautiful room and everybody's going to get your own room. It's going to be outfitted for you and oh my gosh, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be shiplap in there and all that kind of stuff. Okay, we restored this. And so here's the idea right now is when we sit there and we think, hey, we're going to fix up a room, we're going to do this. That is not the way that it's going to be done. The way that it's going to be done is not nailing this to the wall. It's he's going to be nailed to a tree. That's how it's prepared. Don't miss how your life and my life is prepared, not by Jesus going up and constructing something, but Jesus going to the cross. That's how, the, that's how this life, that's how we have access to God the Father, because of the cross and the empty tomb. 
And he's making a very clear declaration that what's going to happen is, I got to go prepare this place, and nobody else can do it. That's why I'm going to do it. You're in a mess. It needs to be fixed, and I'm going to take care of it. And somebody's going to nail me to that cross, and then I'm going to come down off that cross. I'm going to go in a tomb. And after I go into that tomb three years later, I'm going to come out of it. And that's what he's saying. And so then praise the Lord for Thomas. And everybody said, verse five says this, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thank you, Lord, for people like Thomas. It tells us a lot about King Jesus. He's not afraid of our questions. He listens to us. Thomas is like, I don't care what they hear or what they're going. You just explain that you're going away. But Thomas comes and says, hey, 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 time out. I don't get it. I love that. I love that. Oftentimes, we look at Thomas, every time he's been seen in the Bible, we also refer to him as who? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. Don't you just hate that? Because you and I, this text reveals that God is not afraid to hear from us and what our questions might be. Let me tell you something. If you ever call me this, I will rebuke you in the name of Jesus. But in the fifth grade, my nickname was Matt the Fat. I want to tell you something right now that hurt my feelings really bad. I didn't like that nickname. Well, wouldn't it be terrible if you were to have that nickname your entire life? Thankfully, I don't have that nickname. But uh, I would say this, you get labeled this, and here is Thomas right now. He's, he's the guy, the guy that doubts all the time. But here's what I want us to learn from Thomas. Thomas is not afraid to ask a question, and I'm praying right now that you would not be afraid to ask a question. We've been asking questions in here the last three weeks because at the end of the day, we want you truly to explore who God is because we believe that he has a great plan for your life. We believe that he can do something far greater than you could ever ask or imagine in your life. And that is what we want you to know. So Thomas represents humanity in our, in, in our limited ability to say, hey, time out. I don't know where you're going. You need to explain this to me. And Jesus does, okay, I'll do that. So he does that. John chapter six, here it is. Absolutely beautiful. You've probably memorized this. If you've been in church a long time, you've memorized this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so really what I believe is our text has two points about claims that are made in this text. So there are two points that I want to make. The first point I want to say is this claim is an exclusive claim. This claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father, it is an exclusive claim claim. Jesus did not mince words and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a way. That article A is not in there. He made, he made it very clear. He said, I am the way, meaning all other ways are not true. This is the only way. This is a quote for you. Every life is a spiritual journey that is only successful if God is the destination. There is no more important question than if God is real, then how in the world do I get to him? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. In the ancient world, it is said that all roads lead to Rome. We cannot say that about Jesus. We cannot say that because of what he just said. Religion, here it is, religion tells you and I, do and you are accepted. Jesus, biblical Christianity says, I did and you're invited. 
That's a radical difference. Religion is based on rules and regulations, whereas biblical Christianity and this statement is based on a personal relationship, not a religion. Religion basically says that do whatever, never, do whatever you want and believe whatever you want. Just be sincere about that. Biblical Christianity is radically different. I was going door to door on a mission trip in 1997, and I will never forget this. Knocked on this door with a friend of mine, and we were there to explain who Christ was and inform them that there was a new church that was being planted in Claremont, New Hampshire. We knocked on the door. This Indian family came to the door. They were Hindu. They told us very clearly they were the kindest people in the world. They looked at us. We shared our faith, and she agreed. When I looked her in the face, I said, do, does what I'm saying to you, does that make sense to you when Jesus made the claim, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life? Does that make sense to you? And she says, absolutely. I'm going to put him on the shelf with the rest of the gods. 350 million gods in the Hindu faith. 350 million gods. And here's what they say. As long as you are allegiant to your God, you're good. She was overwhelmed, even said this to our faith, of our sincerity and our passion that believed that Jesus was the only way. She was greatly encouraged by that. But Christianity proclaims that Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, cult members, New Agers, New Agers and moral people, every person who is without Jesus is on a dead-end street. That's what the scripture teaches. Jews and Muslims, yes, they are monotheistic like Christianity. But here is the major difference. Muslims and Jews do not believe in the resurrection. That separates Christianity from every other way there is about it. Jews believe that Jesus is not the Messiah. They do not believe he came, do not believe that he went to the cross. Don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Muslims believe that it was actually not Jesus who went. At the last moment, Judas was substituted or somebody was substituted. A lot of people say Judas was put on the cross instead of Jesus. And then there was another faith system that was created, really, really identified in 2005. By, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll shorten that by saying behavior modification. Here's what it says. In 2005, Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton released a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. In their book, Smith and Denton coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to describe the de facto dominant religion among contemporary teenagers. And this is what it says. Moral, moralistic, God, is in, God wants you to behave the right way. Therapeutic, God wants you to be happy too. Deism, there is a God, he made the world and then he left it. God isn't personally involved in everyday lives or people. That flies in the face of the absolute statement that we have that Jesus made. I was so encouraged to hear Ravi Zacharias debate with a Muslim leader. And he said, the Muslim leader looked at Ravi Zacharias, who was a Christian apologist, and he said, I want you to know something, Ravi. He said, it's time we Muslims stop saying that Jesus did not die on the cross. It's time we start asking why. Massive breakthrough. Massive breakthrough. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you the Google directions of take a right, take a left, and do this, and jump up that. And what I'm telling you right now is I stand in your face, and I am the way. You're looking at the way. He said it. It's, Christianity is not a creed. It's not a ceremony. It's not a code of conduct. It's a person. 
Christianity is Christ and Christ is God and Christianity is based on Jesus Christ where everybody in the world that believes in another way are pointing to away from themselves and to works. Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and cult members and New Agers and those that are moralistic therapeutic deism or behavior modification, they're pointing to behavior. Just do this and you're right. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. What I want you to do here is all of those things of your behavior will change, but first you gotta see me as the way. You've got to understand that he's the way. It's not words, it's a person. Acts 4.12 says, we've been studying this in our, book of, in our study of the book of Acts. We'll return there in a couple of weeks. And this is what it says, and there is salvation in no other, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. 1 Timothy 5, 2.5 says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. I would say the God-man, Jesus Christ. So, this claim that he made in John 14, 6 is an exclusive claim because what we see in the way, but it's also an exclusive claim because of when we look at the way he said he was the truth. He said he was the way, he also said he was the truth. And I gotta tell you something, maybe I'm dating myself, but man, it's a great movie, A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. And we're sitting here, and he's sitting there, and he's all up there, and he's kind of like this. He says, I want the truth. And he says, you can't handle. Come on. Oh, there you go. Participation. Come on, help me. You can't handle the truth. And I just, when I sit there and I see Jesus going, he said he was the truth. My goal and my prayer is that you would be able to handle the truth. My goal and my prayers this morning is that you would submit to the truth. The truth is Jesus. It is all of him and, and all of him. Um, in 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary, this is The Economist, it's a magazine that wrote, that the Oxford English Dictionary chose as the word of the year post-truth. That's the word of the year. I didn't know that, and I can take a guess at what that would mean, but I have two definitions I want to read to you what it means in post-truth. I think it really sets light into the dilemma and the focus of looking at this text and seeing Jesus as the truth. Here's what it says. Post-truth is designed as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential. Listen to me. Objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Another way of saying it is this. Relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on fact. I was sharing the gospel with a man named Steve one time, a long time ago. He actually passed away of cancer. And I was sharing the gospel with him. And I was like, Steve, I need to ask you a question. If you're figuring out a flight print, he did, he did not believe in absolute truth. And Steve looked at me and he said, I don't believe in absolute truth. And I said, let me ask you a question. What's two plus two? He said, it's four. I said, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. And I said, well, let me ask you another question. If you're figuring out a flight pattern of how to land a plane in the United States of America, you need to understand that two plus two is four. Or your flight pattern is going to be way off. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, but if you go to China, you better believe that two plus two is four because it's the same principle. He's like, nope, it's different. And then he looked at me and goes, I tried to stump you. That was a bad one. <laughs> Here it is. We're taking a look right now, and we have this argument. We have post-truth, but the argument that's been going on for a long time is where we have this absolute truth versus relative truth. 
absolute truths is to say something is absolutely true means it is independently true for all people, even if they do not know it or recognize it to be true. Relative truth, the opposite of that, is to say that something is relative truth can be true for any one person or anybody. It's you get to define it. And let me just make sure that you understand what George Bernard Shaw said. George Bernard Shaw said that God made man in his own image, and in return, we did the same thing to him. We returned the favor. We cannot, based on the way, the truth, and the life, and who he is and what's at stake, redefine who King Jesus is. He defined us. He created us in his image. Do not go down and do the same thing where we get to define who God is. Absolute truth is necessary for the foundation of Christianity, and it is a major, major stumbling block in our world right now. And it's quite possibly a major stumbling block for a lot of some of you in here right now. And I want to look at this verse really jumped out at me this week during my study. It's John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the Bible is teaching us, Jesus is teaching us, declaring to us that he's the truth. And he's sitting here telling us, listen, I'm the one that can set you free. There is nobody else that can do that. I am the way and I am the truth. Don't look any further than me. He also made another statement. The other statement that he made is he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so here's what he says. We need to understand that you and I right now, we need to understand our state. Like, who are we as people? Ephesians chapter 2, we've, we've talked about this a lot at this church, and I would hope that you would recognize that and know that. You simply are not broken. You might be living in a broken situation. You might be living in a tough situation. But I want to know, spiritually speaking, you are born in this world, and you are not spiritually broken. You are spiritually dead. Okay, you're dead. And, and for us to approach the situation as, hey, guess what? I'm just broken. That right there will lead you to a false conclusion of who Jesus is. If you just say that you're broken. Because here's the situation. Ephesians chapter one says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you followed the prince of the power of the air that's in this world. And then verse four, come on, it says, but God who intervened and said, you want life? I'm gonna give you life. Because I am life. That's what he said. And so the people that are listening to him right now, they're saying, man, we're giving up our jobs. We're following you. We're getting persecuted. What in the world's going on? You're leaving us. You're telling somebody's going to deny us. They're troubled. He'll start been saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to that cross. And not only that, I'm going to give you life here, but I'm going to give you life over there. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be magnificent. It is going to be awesome. I love the testimony of Barbara Bush. It was in the news. I've heard it several times. And she said recently, she said, I am going to a beautiful place because I accepted Jesus as my savior. Read that in three places yesterday. So let me just make sure that we understand here that when we take a look at Jesus, it's exclusive. And we know that from him declaring that he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And it's one thing that I, make, I want to make sure that you don't miss is that Jesus didn't simply just die for your sin. Listen to me. He died as your sin. That is a huge difference. Yes, he died for our sins, but he died as our sins. That sin that we committed, either past, present, and future, was laid upon him, and then he took that to the cross to prepare that way for us. He took that place for us. John 10.10, 10, what does he say? 
I want you to have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. And so what I want to make sure you understand is that Jesus is not just talking about a future life that you can have when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That life that is promised to you, yes, is eternity with Jesus and it is forever and it is beautiful and we can't wait to get there and I can't wait to get there and can't see it. But what he's saying is, is I want you to have life and live life right here, right now. That you have a purpose to live. You have a purpose to make a difference. You have a purpose to talk about and make much of me while I have you on this, on this planet. You live where you live because of, of God's sovereignly positioned and place, in you, place you. You're at this church for God's purpose to live life right now, to live for Jesus right here, right now. The claim is an exclusive claim. And not only that, it's a generous claim. It's a generous claim. When I talk about, when I look at the, the, the issue of generosity, it, it, there's, there's all this stuff like, there can't be just one way. That's the objection. There can't be just one way. I would have to propose to you that I am, I am blown away when I read the scripture that there's even one way. And I think what that does is it allows us to see the generosity of God because here's what took place. God made man in his image and he said, hey, I'm making you, I've fashioned you, I've created you with everything you need and what I want you to do is I want you to be in this garden right here. I'm gonna put you in this garden and just, hey, by the way, I'm gonna give you everything you need and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep you in this place and you're gonna be right there. And he goes, but one thing I wanna do for you is I don't want you to do this but you have the freedom to do anything else right there within the confines of glorify me. I don't want you to eat this I want you to be there. And, and let's just suppose for a minute that, yeah, oh, we, we did what he told us not to do. And God said that you're gonna do what I told you not to do. And he said, if you do that, we're gonna die. But we didn't die. Instead, God's grace came in. And he gave us a, a, another chance. And, and, and suppose that in years and generations after that, people did not follow him and people rebelled against him and God continued to reveal himself to us. And suppose he, he made a way for us. He, he sent messengers to know. He raised up a group of prophets, some minor prophets and some major prophets to declare to us who he is and what he wanted to do in our lives. And sometimes they listened and sometimes they didn't. And it was a big roller coaster and they went and all of a sudden he gave them another chance and he gave them another chance and he gave them another chance. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we walk into the New Testament and we see that the gospels declare that there is a guy who is coming. He's a fully God and fully man. And God said, hey, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna rescue you and I'm gonna send my one and only son. I'm gonna send myself in the flesh and I'm gonna reign among them. And somebody mocked him and crucified him and beat him and scourged him and didn't listen to them. And he gave grace upon grace upon grace among us doing that. So it's amazing to me, considering all that we have done in terms of cosmic treason to a holy God, and he even gives us one way. It blows my mind to the fact that he would look at us and lovingly say to us, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. It is not, not through a religion it is simply through a relationship. And I would summarize the statement that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The greatest thing that gets in the way of your relationship with God is your desire to be God. And the thing that I would encourage you to say, or I would encourage you to see, if I could just add to the statement, Jesus is looking at us in John 14, 6, and he's telling us, get out of my way. Get out of my way. 
I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you truth. And I'm going to show you the way. And there is nothing greater than it. There is nothing greater than it. So back to our question. Is Christianity too narrow? Yes. And no. Matt, you just took the easy way out. It looks like it's a yes or no question. And it is. Is Christianity too narrow? It is exclusively through the work of Jesus Christ that we are connected to God the Father, and that is it. So yes, it is narrow, and that is only him. But here, don't miss this. But the Bible declares that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so it is narrow, and that it is through Jesus. And it is not too narrow, and that all can come. Don't ever forget that. Christianity is so radically different than any other faith system in the world because it is a picture of God coming to us where all other systems say, you come to me, you come to me, or you do this and you can come to me, you do this and you can come to me, or it's you do whatever you can do in order to get your way to him. And I wanna illustrate this with something that maybe you've heard me share before, but I wanna close with saying this is my favorite picture of what it means to really know what biblical Christianity is. Several years ago, we got to go to the beach with my family, and so we went to the beach as a family. And that particular Sunday, don't judge me, I chose not to go to church. I was on vacation, and we did not decide to go to church, but we decided basically to have church as a family. And so that, that morning, we woke up, and I said, okay, guys, come on. I had my Bible. I said, let's, let's go out to the stairwell outside. We were on a 10th floor, 10th story condo. And so we went out into the stairwell, and I was on, on up here, and then tw- about 15 steps down, 12 or 15 steps down, I had my kids, my mother-in-law, and my wife. My father-in-law got up and went to church that morning. He's more spiritual than us. And so all of my kids and my wife and my, my mother-in-law were down there, and I was up here, and I said, okay, we're just going to do something right now. I want you to know, I want you to sit there and say that I am God, and I want you to come to me. The only issue is you cannot touch any of the steps you got to come to me. I'm standing up here, and I'm just looking at him like this, and I'm like, I am God. And I'm looking at my kids. I'm like, come to me. I want you to come to me. Okay? Who's the first? Well, who do you think? Jake, of course. I mean, he's like, I got this. I got this. And Jake gets a running start from about three feet because it was the wall was there. And so he tries to jump, and he made it to the second step. I think Andrew made it to the third step. Molly, the third step. Luke, the second step. Grammy, who was there, said, I, I'm not even going to try. And Dana was like, what are you doing? And I am sitting there, and I'm looking down at them, and I'm sitting there saying, so what do you learn? What do you learn? They look, Dad, in unison, is like, Dad, this is impossible. This is absolutely impossible. And I said, you're exactly right. And I walked down the steps. I put Jake on my back, and I carried him up to the platform. I went back down, and I got Luke, and I went back, took him up. I went down. I got Molly, and I took her back up, and I went down, and I got Andrew, and I took him back up, and I was really out of breath, and I went down. <laughs> and I took Dana, and I got, put her up there, and I went down, and I got Grammy, who is with Jesus right now. And we got to the top, and I'm like, what did you learn? Jesus came for me. And one of them goes, Jesus came for me. And another one, for me, for me, for me, for me. And all the kids start saying, and Grammy goes, for me too. (laughs) And I want you to know he came for you too. He came for you. And he wants to make sure you know it. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're sitting in here right now, I beg you and plead with you to recognize that you cannot do enough to answer your sin problem. 
that only Jesus took care of that. And he's waiting for you to, to, to answer him because he's coming to you. He's there to forgive. He's there to give you the way. He's there to show you the way. He's there to show you life. He's there to give you life. He's there to demonstrate to you that he's the truth. Let us understand that truly biblical Christianity is narrow in Jesus alone and not too narrow because all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love you. If you're in here today and you don't know him, please don't leave here without knowing him. I'll be out in that back. We'll talk about it. If you're sitting here in this, and this song, you don't need me to talk to me. You don't need to talk to anybody else. If you're sitting in here right now and you say, I do not know him, I'm asking you just right where you are, say, God, please save me. And guess what? He'll do it. He'll do it. Because he said he would. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May we live with that truth as we continue to make much of him in our city, in our world. I love you. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the revelation of yourself to us. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that we don't have to sit here and wonder if you are the way. Thank you that we can know that you are the way. Thank you that we can know that you are truth. Thank you that we can know that you are life. Thank you that we stand on a promise that cannot be taken away, that all a call upon your name will be saved. And so, Lord, there's a lot of us in here right now that, may, that, that know you and know you well, and I pray that today's um, statement and, and our message would cause them to grow deeper in you, that you would use that for their own progressive sanctification. And I also pray, God, that if there's anybody in here that right, right now that does not know you, please don't let them leave here without experiencing and, and meeting you. Do whatever it takes to get their attention and for them to follow you. And above all, thank you for coming down and rescuing us. You are so good, and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.